Welcome to ECDHR in Conversation with Saudi Women, presented by Deborah, Manon, Mariangela, and Sherry. We hope that through this series you will get a better understanding of the women's rights situation in Saudi Arabia and why our participants left the country. All of them are now very active in the fight for human rights and this might be a great opportunity for you to get inspiration from amazing women. Thank you for joining us in today's episode. Hello and welcome. I'm joined by Bethany Alhadri, a PhD researcher at the Irish Centre for Human Rights and Saudi officer at Freedom Initiative, a human rights organisation focusing on political prisoners in the Arab world. Bethany has spent most of her adult life working in countries throughout Africa and the Middle East and has published numerous articles on the human rights situation in Saudi Arabia, where she herself lived for eight years. Today, we will talk about Bethany's experience in Saudi Arabia and the reasons that forced her to flee. Welcome, Bethany, and thank you so much for agreeing to join us and share your experience. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. So, Bethany, you moved to Saudi Arabia in 2011 to teach at a women's university. Can you tell us a bit more about your decision to move to Saudi Arabia and your expectations before you moved there? Sure. Um, What initially drew me to Saudi Arabia was two things. Uh, my best friend in college and my neighbor was a Saudi woman from Sehat, a town in the eastern province. Um, and the second was a desire to understand the human rights situation. Because of my best friend and her family being Saudi, I already had a really close and positive experience with Saudi through her and her family. However, uh, my story with moving to Saudi actually started in Tunisia. I was living in Tunisia in 2010 and 2011 during the start of the Jasmine revolution, which people would later refer to as the Arab Spring. And that was a life-changing moment for me to witness a popular uprising, especially as an American, I I didn't really understand living under dictatorship or not being able to speak about or criticize political leaders freely. So I quickly understood when I moved to Tunisia, the fear and power that Bin Ali had over my peers who I was working with in Tunisia. It was Tunisians who really taught me the value of democracy and freedom um, and marching in the streets alongside them and seeing them successfully topple it. A dictator was a really life-changing moment for me. So I moved from working in education to human rights and I applied for my first master's um, in Middle East and Islamic law. And Saudi Arabia, um, also as an absolute monarchy, And it had so many more interesting dynamics. It was a country that I wanted to understand the most. And uh, at the time, it was the most difficult to access. So I did get a job, like you said, teaching at a a university and started studying my master's project, focusing on the uprisings that had then started happening in Saudi Arabia at the time in 2011. And then later was working on uh, my PhD focused on perceptions of legal rights and freedoms amongst Saudi Arabia as well. My expectations uh, about Saudi were pretty clear because of my best friend and being involved in her community. Um, I've been pretty well prepped on what to expect and what was normal or not, but I wasn't prepared for how much of a toll some of the realities on the ground would take on me. I think some of the most shocking things were seeing how migrant workers were and continue to be treated in Saudi 
racism in America and racism in Saudi are two very real um, and despicable beasts in Saudi, though it was especially apparent through the treatment of household workers like live-in drivers or live-in domestic workers who came from developing nations in Africa and Asia. And that shocked me. Um, I'd never been around something that was so blatantly a modern form of slavery and how few rights the workers actually had. I was also amazed um, at how brave and courageous human rights defenders in Saudi were. And sometimes this is also just uh, not necessarily human rights defenders, but individuals who expressed a view that was divergent from the Saudi state's narrative, but risked their life to speak out. So my experience living there changed over time. Obviously, I moved there as a single 23-year-old woman, <laughs> um, started out working in a really rural town called El Baja. And at the time when I moved there, it was not developed, nor did it have a public space for women to really be out and about. And then obviously it changed when I moved to Riyadh and in the eastern province of El Khobar. Um, those cities were very different experiences for me. And, you know, I went from working in a university to getting married to a Saudi to becoming a mother in Saudi. And then also eventually after I separated, going through a separation and becoming a business owner in Saudi. So these were really formative experiences for me, which changed, but it, it, it keeps me really connected, especially through my daughter being Saudi to the country and still holding a really, really kind of sacred place in my heart for the, the people in Saudi. Thank you. Thank you very much for explaining that. I'd like to go back to something you mentioned earlier. You talked about how you saw migrant workers, domestic workers, and how the system there is really equivalent to modern slavery. They would be working under the sponsorship system, the same one that you were under as a foreigner working in Saudi Arabia. Is that correct? Yeah. So the sponsorship system, it's called the Kafala system. That is how I got there. And initially, every, every resident in, in Saudi Arabia has a sponsor, which is called the Kafil. Initially, it was my employer, but I think what people are less aware of is that if you are a foreigner married to a Saudi national or a resident working in Saudi Arabia, they become your sponsor. And, you know, every single foreign resident is essentially under the complete control of their sponsor or kafil. And because Saudi women are not permitted to pass citizenship onto their children, um, sometimes in the case of children of Saudi women who are married to foreigners, they will also be their kafil. So a sponsor exercises significant ownership rights over the lives of the person that they sponsor. They alone have the power to keep an immigration status of their dependent up to date. You know, if they fail to do that, all financial services, all bank accounts, even medical treatment lawsuits are, are almost, you're unable to access those. It could be frozen. You could be arrested and deported. And, you know, that control is in the hands of the sponsor and they alone have the power to permit their dependent to exit or re-enter the country. It was slightly changed last year. However, that reform failed to include a certain category of, of workers, uh, which, which obviously were the ones that were the most vulnerable, <laughs> but it's, you know, also if, if somebody's arrested or they want to move to a new household, a sponsor has to sign them out of prison or allow and permit them to, to move out of a residence. And, you know, if you're married in the case of marriage, if for example, your husband or wife, I suppose, if she was a Saudi citizen was your sponsor, 
you do have the power to register them as a runaway if they leave the household without permission. And they did at least at the time. And you know, then you'd be subject to arrest or deportation. So as you can see, the system is easily used to exploit and trap, coerce individuals into compliance and servitude. So I think you know, the Department of State uh, has put a lot of recommendations on, on the Kafala system and, and mentioned how that it needs to be reformed as it exasperates human trafficking risks, but also that individuals who live under the sponsorship system are unable to exercise their right to remove themselves from dangerous situations. And I think that's why the system is referred to as a modern form of slavery. And, you know, both U.S. Congress and in the European parliaments, they've, they've done this. And it's why several see the system as a violation of the United Nations Convention on Slavery, which Saudi Arabia did sign and ratify, but obviously the Kafala system puts them in violation of that. So I think the exercising of rights of ownership over the individual in the sponsorship system is, is, is really, really problematic, and it makes it a modern form of slavery. And you yourself, Bethany, lived in Saudi Arabia for eight years. And during your time, you published numerous articles on the human rights situation in Saudi Arabia including the things that you've just talked about. Notably, in 2014, you published an article in Mufta entitled The Burden of Being Female in Saudi Arabia. Could you elaborate on this burden and whether you experienced it yourself? Yes. Yeah, so, I yeah, that was a really personal story to write. And I you can kind of, as I'm going through that, that article, a few, just a highlight of a few experiences that I had been through. And I think it really is the first, the first time in my life where I felt being a woman was exhausting and it was a burden to carry in a different way than it is anywhere else in the world. I felt like I was wearing, being and aware of being female at all times. I, you know, I, I went to a historically black college in in the United States and tried to really like make myself familiar with the experience of of like minorities in my country but there was nothing that ever registered or clicked for me because obviously as as you know a white American middle-class American um, I didn't experience those those kind of like microaggressions or racism right the only time that I think I got something clicked and registered for me was being under the kafala system being married and under the control of a male and constantly dealing with these very aggressive moments of not being human dehumanized not being valued in the words that i would say or not being taken seriously that was extremely like i said it was heavy to be female it was the first time that i felt that in my life especially in the courts, <laughs> I would say. That story was just through life in general. But I think once I got into the legal system, that's where it was a whole new level of, of discrimination that I was experiencing for the first time and, and just brought things to life um, in a different way. Could you tell us a bit more about the way your life did change, perhaps, when you got married and became a mother? Um, maybe how this burden changed or didn't? Sure. I think that becoming a, a wife or a mother is overall is, is it's a big life change, no matter where you are, let alone doing it in a different culture. 
there was some things that were really nice <laughs> about, especially, I think Saudis were a lot more relaxed about pregnancy and in some ways than, than I experienced that in the States uh, when I was here while pregnant with Zena. But, you know, there were things that I was not prepared for, uh, I guess, in dealing with, again, my life was pretty protected in a way. And, you know, I, I was able to stay, stay with my daughter while I was doing my PhD research at home. And I enjoyed parenting, but it was quite lonely and quite difficult. And, you know, things like postpartum depression are not something that's really talked about or understood. You know, there's, there's not a community of, I'd say like medical professionals focusing on mental health, on supporting mothers that just wasn't, it's just not developed at the moment in Saudi Arabia. So I think getting support when I was struggling as a new mom was, was difficult and I didn't have that community to rely on. But I think again, uh, when everything kind of came to life for me was going through the legal system, because you don't really know what the status of a woman or the status of a, a mother or a divorcee is until you're dealing with it through the law. Um, and that's where that's where the experience of being a mother and and being the wife came around and, and became real for me. And with your daughter growing up in Saudi Arabia, the male guardianship system applies to her. Well, for you, it's the sponsorship system. Could you tell us how these two systems compare? Sure. I mean, essentially, they're nearly identical, right? The main difference is that sponsorship is for non-Saudis <laughs> and male guardianship is for Saudi citizens. So yeah, my daughter is currently under the male guardianship system anytime she would be in the Saudi Arabian jurisdiction for life right? There's no way out of it until she would, if she chose to marry, it would be passed on to her husband. Some of the differences are that recently Saudi women were given the right to get their own passport and control their entry and re-exit out of the country. However, that is limited in some cases. There's legal loopholes around that. Um, and Saudi women such as Lujain al-Hadlul, uh, Aziz al-Yusuf, and several others who really campaigned for the end of male guardianship system. They really did make an impact and make changes that were kind of forcing that to move along. Obviously, they ended up in prison and now are under travel bans and still remain in the country, but they really were so key in granting some of the changes and reforms to the male guardianship system that recently happened. Now, Foreigners in Saudi Arabia do not have the power to kind of mobilize and organize and demand rights, especially because the majority are coming from developing nations and they're in really dire circumstances. So you see that as of recent, because of the movement of Saudi women and the organization of Saudi women, the male guardianship system had some changes made to it. The same hasn't really happened for the kafala system. So those limitations on travel are still there. The limitations on rights are still there, whereas some of those have changed, changed with the male guardianship system, but it still remains at large. So yeah, I would say the major difference is both modern forms of slavery, one for foreigners and one for Saudi females. <laughs> and you mentioned earlier that going through the courts, you really felt this burden of being female in Saudi Arabia. Could you explain and describe a bit more about this experience and what it really felt like to go through? 
Sure. I'll start with the first day that I walked into the courtroom. <laughs> you know, my friends had graciously coached me through how you need to look and appear in front of the judge, like remembering that there are no female judges. It's all Sharia law, according to the interpretation of the judges. So they're, you know, traditionally super conservative, right, in the context of Saudi. So um, my friends coached me, you know, the abaya, it's a gown that covers over your clothes that's black. They're like, it has to be black, <laughs> no colors on your abaya. You cannot wear makeup. You have to cover your hair and make sure not a single strand of hair is showing. So I was like, okay, check. My, I'm not wearing makeup. No strand of hair is showing. I'm covering my hair in my black tarha and like wearing a black robe all the way, no, nothing like sparkly or no colors. And I thought I was, you know, doing, doing this the right way. And the minute that I walked into the courtroom and walked in and said, Salaam alaikum, you know, and, and he started yelling at me <laughs> to cover my face. So I was panicked, you know, and I kind of like had all my papers and stepped out of the courtroom shocked and was rustling my papers around in my tatha, which is like the scarf over your head to cover my face. So I had to pull a part of that over my face. So it was just entirely covered in black and trying to peek at my papers underneath as I was struggling through the courtroom. So that was my first experience walking in a courtroom and trying to defend myself was being screamed at to cover my face. And as it progressed on, I think that was really a, a key indicative moment of like where this was going forward. So as it, as it went on, you know, I would present evidence. I would bring out like documentation, medical reports, and none of that mattered. None of that mattered at all because where was my male witness? Did somebody see this happen? And, and can you bring them? And, and then if I did bring a male witness, who were they? how are they related to you? Is this an inappropriate relationship that you, you have with this person? So it was just impossible. It was impossible. And in our court notes, you know, the minutes of the court, literally there's the judge makes a notation where he's like, you know, the, the plaintiff, which was me brought forward a testimony with lots of documentation and it was very long and the husband said that it wasn't right. So because he's the husband and because he's the man, we believe them and we believe him and we go with what he said and he swore it's true. So essentially like, it didn't matter what I said. It didn't matter what evidence I had. It didn't matter what other medical professionals said. It just, it was impossible. It was impossible to do anything as a woman because you know your testimony is not the same as a man's. And you need a male witness, but bringing a male witness can put you at risk, right? So it was just really, really difficult to deal with that throughout the entirety of the case and to be spoken to like I was kind of a fool or didn't know what I was talking about and just listening to others and letting me sit in silence, telling me to be quiet, you know, it was, it was difficult. So after these court proceedings, which essentially failed and forced you to get back together with your ex-husband, two years later, you went on a trip to the US to see your parents with your daughter and never returned to Saudi Arabia. Can you tell us about this decision? Why you took it? And what was it like trying to make this decision? Was it an easy process for you? Wow. <laughs> so... When I initially filed for divorce and for custody of my daughter who was living with me at the time, I never imagined that it would 
go down this path, you know? So I lost custody of my daughter in July of 2019 after being forced to file in Saudi because I was unable to exit the country. He was still my, my sponsor and he had let my, my immigration status expire. So bank accounts were frozen. I was stuck in the country and then filed to try to like regain my, my own freedom and independence through divorce to whatever degree freedom and independence is available in Saudi. So at the end, after custody happened, I filed an appeal. It was a very expensive appeal as well, because I had to get, you know, emergency release of medical records from our marital counseling that revealed um, a lot of what I was saying to be to be true and problematic for her to go to the household that she was going to. So I filed this appeal, um, worked really hard on it with my lawyers in Saudi and with my lawyers in the United States. And because of the media attention around this, which was terrifying to go to the media, but also a saving grace for, for us, the Saudi, and, and because the US government, State Department was gracious and got involved and raised our case and filed an official complaint to the Saudi Ministry of Foreign Affairs um, of discrimination because the court ruling literally said the mother is a foreigner new to Islam and embraces her culture and traditions. And we have to protect the child from these culture, you know, this culture and tradition. And, and, you know, the fact that the child speaks English is indicative of the mother's poor influence on the child. So it was so discriminatory, blatantly discriminatory. However, I did file an appeal that had very strong arguments and that was completely derailed. You know, once, once the U S government got involved, once media was involved, you know, it was like, okay, derail the appeal, call them back in, even though court proceedings were done, even though this is in violation of Saudi law. And if essentially they sat me down in Riyadh with the head of the, the personal status court, which is the lower first instance court, the U S embassy was there. It was so unreal, you know, and they're like serving the U S embassy staff tea and dates and like welcoming them. Um, and letting them put like this like incense and <laughs> it was so unreal and then I was there and you know we had the head of the the lower court saying nobody gets custody not you not you not you just agree on the days and I said you know we're talking about abuse we're talking about drug use and drug abuse in front of a child so you need to review the medical records that I submitted to the court and the appeal. And he said, nope, don't talk about the past. Nobody gets to talk about the past. Agree on the days you give the father who also lost custody. He was given to his, his, his mother. You give the father three or four days and you get her for three or four days. That to me was a life sentence in Saudi Arabia. I wouldn't have been able to exit with her out of the country. I would have been stuck there forever. She would have been stuck there forever. I would have been at his mercy because of how much power the male guardian has over their child's life. And she would not be safe. So when the court system failed me, that's when the advice of a friend who a dear friend to me, a Saudi woman came to mind. She told me, you know, if this goes to hell at the end, you need to ask him to take you back. And I thought she was insane. 
you know, the guy, my ex-husband had not spoken to me and, and refused to see me or, or speak to me. And that's what I ended up having to do to degrade myself in that moment, asked to speak to him. And the judge forced him to speak to me in, in a room. And I just told him like, I'm sorry, can you take me back? Cause I knew that at that point, that was our only option. The appeal was gone. Courts didn't care about me. They didn't care about my daughter. All they cared about was making this go away, which would trap us in the country. So yes, I, I did go back to him. Uh, super degrading, had to physically be with him, which was also degrading and also illegal. <laughs> so it put me at risk because if he reported it again, I, I would be in the position where I would lose my daughter again. If he got mad at me, it was just, he had too much power. Um, but, and I had a business there, you know, um, so I kind of set things up after we had been together, he and I, you know, together, I say in quotation marks, because it was not real for me, it was, it was horrible. But um, after that, you know, for three months, I, I asked him to let us travel to the States to visit my family for Christmas. I set up a really big like business deal in January of the next year. He didn't think that I would turn down that business deal. Somebody was trying to buy me out of my company for a lot of money. And I had him involved in that process. I set up like events that he thought that I would come back for, but it was not a hard decision for me. I, you know, I was stuck for, for nearly two years with her trying to get out the whole time, like putting on a, a facade of being okay, because, you know, I couldn't look to be anti-Saudi to the government, um, which was being argued against me in the court case. Um, but I knew, I knew from like day one that I needed to get her out and me to get out. So the minute that like we landed in Seattle and I could see the space needle outside of the airplane window, that was it. Everything, every truth came out. I was crying. I was sobbing. Department of Homeland Security pulled me aside because of how emotional and how much I had lost it on the airplane when we were landing. They're like, we have some questions for you. And that was the moment I reported everything. So like, it's all on record with Department of Homeland Security. The minute I landed, I was like, we were trapped. <laughs> and it was such an emotional moment to have my daughter with me. And it's a privilege now to work with other people who are in similar situations and to try to guide them through that process because people don't usually get out, you know? So I feel like it's almost a duty, you know, to, to help other women who are in similar circumstances because there are so many and it is terrifying to be on the ground and to feel so powerless, especially when children are involved. So it was not a difficult decision to stay. That was always the plan. And it was a long, like I, people say a long con. Yes, I had to resort to that because the legal system failed me, but I made a plan to get out and we did it. You've been through a lot and it sounds like, yeah, what you had to go through to even just leave has been such a challenge. Now, going through all this and thinking forwards, do you think you could ever go back to Saudi Arabia and would you want to go back? Well, in March, <laughs> and this helped my case, actually, uh, in March of this year, there was a, a journalist in Saudi Arabia that published a story, a defamatory story saying that I was a spy while I was living in Saudi. And this whole long, long story about me being a spy. 
And if you're not aware, there is a fatwa in Saudi Arabia that it's like spies should be killed. <laughs> so I will not go back to Saudi Arabia. I was not a spy. If I was, I would have had a way easier time getting out of the country. Um, but, you know, I would love to. That was my community for almost a decade. That was where I worked. It's kind of where I grew up. You know, I started 23 and had a child, got married, like, I have friends that I'm not able to speak to anymore because it's a risk for them. If it becomes a democracy and Mohammed bin Salman and the Al Saud family is not in power, I will be comfortable to go back. But that is just not the case right now. And my daughter has her will have her own experience with going there someday and we'll have that talk. I know she'll be curious. It's dangerous for her to go back because probably couldn't get her back until she's an adult, you know, and and those will be conversations I'll have with her. But looking forward, I would say that I am so proud that my daughter can be a senator. She can participate in her government. She can, you know, be a woman's rights activist or a dissident without having to go to jail or be tortured for it or put under travel ban for it. She could be a lesbian if she wants. She could be an artist, be a judge if she wants to. She can do so many things. And I think that freedom, you know, I left behind everything, our home, our business. I don't have access to any of the company's fund. I left it. And like freedom is definitely worth all of that, especially for her to have every possibility ahead of her. So, yeah. And since you've been back to the U.S., it's been almost two years now. Um, you've been very active in raising awareness regarding human rights. Um, you're a PhD student in international human rights law. And you said earlier that you're helping other women who've been in the same situation. Could you clarify for us, is this Saudi woman or woman in America? And how did you get into this field? So when we got out and when it was kind of released in, in public that we were out, I got contacted by so many women, not just Americans. I think some like nearly a hundred of our cases were American women or multinational and children. Some of them are migrant workers that are still on the ground and stuck from, from various parts of the world. Several different cases just came through. So with the woman who actually helped me get out of Saudi, I, I founded the, the Saudi American Justice Project, which is a nonprofit based in my home state of Washington. And that is, it's a charity, right? So I just communicate with cases of, of entrapment, uh, be it on the ground or women who've had their kids kidnapped to Saudi by their former husbands or husbands and can't get the children back. People who are stuck under the Kafala system or like stuck in Saudi and abuse there aren't resources for that in Saudi on the ground. And when women did try to open up domestic violence shelters, they were arrested. So, you know, we do our best with my, my colleague to just guide and help any women that we can on the ground and kind of like have repeated my process uh, for them. We work with members of Congress to advocate for them and the state department and and give them like really helpful local lawyers in Saudi on the ground and, and some recommendations here as well, because it's just a confusing system to work through. 
And sometimes that means like writing testimonies to courts when there's a court case involved. So it, it, it looks different for each case, but it's really important work to me. And it came organically through my own experience. So it's really inspirational work you're doing. As a last question, I'd like to ask you if there's a message you would like to give to our listeners. I guess I would just say that until people are able to participate in their government, until they're free, until they're able to critically speak about policies, about rights, any of the reforms that have been put out and you know propagated by the Saudi government for change, it's not enough. Women still live under a pretty dire circumstance in Saudi. And that goes for everyone who's on the ground there, regardless of nationality, regardless of background, regardless of, of gender. If you aren't free and able to speak, um, none of this really means anything. So I think the message would be that we do need to promote that Saudi citizens do want changes. They are not what has been propagated by the Saudi government not ready for change or in need of baby steps on the ground people are ready they're ready and it's just a ridiculous and discriminatory narrative for the state to hold so i would say just support as best you can dissidents in the diaspora who are speaking out and to know that that is not something unique to the diaspora yes people are saying you know on the ground will will say what they have to say but there's so many people that want more and we have to support that it's been a pleasure to interview you. And on behalf of ECDHR, thank you, Bethany Alhadri, for speaking to us today. Thank you for having me. On behalf of ECDHR, thank you for joining us and for listening to our podcast. The next episode will be available next Friday. You can find a few recommended readings from our interviewees in the show notes for each episode. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to our social media channels if you want to learn more about the human rights situation in the GCC countries.